Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. We're going to get into this week's sermon, and we're in uh, what I'm just going to call The Way. We're not going to call it a sermon series anymore because if you haven't noticed, we've been in it for a little while, and we're going to be in it a little while longer. And so uh, what we're going to do is just keep walking with Jesus. This is what we've been doing for uh, the better part of a couple months now. We're walking with Jesus, and we're going to keep walking with Jesus until uh, he gets to Jerusalem. And so if you flip forward in your Bible from Luke chapter 11 and 12, you'll see how far we have to go until he gets to Jerusalem. And we're just going to keep understanding and, and leaning in and trying to figure out what Jesus wants us to do with our lives by the way he lived his. So... Um, What we're doing today is uh, walking with Jesus, and he's addressing crowds. He's been addressing all these crowds. Last week, if you were with us, he said, um, he was talking about being the light. You know, no one lights a lamp and puts it under the bushel, That the old children's song. That's the scripture it came from. So he's talking about light, and then what happens next is uh, the Pharisees are around, and let's just say uh, they invite him to dinner, and it unravels quickly. So uh, we'll put it up for you. You can read along with me in Luke chapter 11. He says this, when Jesus had finished speaking... A Pharisee invited him to eat with him. And so when he went in and reclined at the table, the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to to him, Now then, you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without, without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important places in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you because you are the like unmarked graves. He's, he had a dinner party at this guy's house. And he goes, you are like an unmarked grave, which people walk over without knowing it. Okay. One of the religion scholars spoke up. He said, teacher, do you realize that in saying these things, you're insulting us? And he said, yes. And I can be even more explicit. This is Jesus. You're hopeless, you religion scholars. You load people down with rules and regulations, nearly breaking their backs, but never lift a finger to help. As soon as Jesus left the table, then the religious scholars and the Pharisees went into a rage, and they went over and over everything he said, plotting how they could trap him in something from his own mouth. Here's the lesson you're supposed to learn today. Do not invite Jesus over for dinner if you don't want to hear what he has to say, because he's going to tell you. Everybody's got that friend where you're like, hey, hey, don't ask, don't ask him because he'll tell you if you want someone to just affirm you, just don't ask him. And Jesus is that one. He's like, I'm coming into your house for dinner, but I'm not going to hold back. This is real. He didn't pull punches. The whole thing goes sideways. He's, he's laying into the host. And what he's addressing is this outside in versus inside out life. Are we outside in or are we inside out? Is it law or is it love? Which one is it? And what we're really seeing Jesus eviscerate in this moment as he kind of speaks pretty harshly to the Pharisees and the religion scholars, what we're seeing Jesus do is actually just address integrity. Religion is all about show. It's about appearances and pretense. 
So washing your hands in that age was a way to show others that you were serious about God. I will follow all God's rules. Watch how serious I am. It's about getting the right people to have the right impression. Have you ever woken up in the morning and, and you're making breakfast or you're getting ready for the day and you realize you need something before you can get the day going, but before you make the breakfast, whatever. I need some orange juice or I'm out of deodorant or whatever. And before you can get going with your day, you need to go to the grocery store and get the thing you need. Only you look in the mirror and it looks like you slept outside the grocery store last night because you haven't left the house yet and you're not ready and you just kind of figured it out. This is what... Uh, this outside-in kind of thing is, is, is I've do, I do that all the time. Oh, we need orange juice, or oh, we're out of eggs, and I was going to do this thing, and I'll just run to the store. And then, you know, you walk by the mirror, and it cracks as I walk by, and then I realize I should probably brush my teeth, especially because I'm the one wearing the mask. I'm the only one getting punished there. And then uh, maybe put a hat on so you don't look quite as scraggly, and then, uh, you know, like a shirt would be nice before you head over to Kroger. And, and all of a sudden, it's a little different. Why do I do that? Because I care about my appearance. Because if I run into you at Kroger, I don't want you to think that I slept out behind Kroger. That's, that's sort of all that is. Is there anything wrong with that? Maybe not. Probably not. Probably it's okay. See, for God, what we do is we make this false dichotomy. It's either outside in or it's inside out. It's, a, it's either this or it's that. And what God is saying, it kind of all matters. Kind of all matters. Integrity is all of it being the same all the time. And so, and so, Outside in is important. Jesus just got finished saying the eye is the lamp of the body. What you take in matters. Outside in matters. Garbage in, garbage out. Inside out is vital too, though, Jesus is saying. Among his teachings, he said that uh, what comes from your heart becomes your speech. From the heart comes your deeds. Where your heart is, there is your treasure. So inside out is also a valid idea. Broadly, Jesus is addressing integrity, but then specifically, he's addressing generosity as a ways to get to integrity. Okay, so Jesus is going to use this idea of integrity outside in or inside out, and he's going to say all of it, and he's going to do this through generosity, and then specifically through uh, giving, tithing, as it's often known in church. He's illustrating it by one thing, the spiritual tax that people are paying. See, in the Old Testament, uh, money was important in that it supported the temple. In the religious world of the Old Testament, the money that someone gave, uh, the Pharisees would have given, goes to the temple and it pays for the temple. It pays for the ceremonies that happen in the temple, the rituals that happen in the temple. It pays for the priests who do the work in the temple, who do all the different things in the community. And then it feeds the poor, it supports the community. It's kind of a whole uh, ongoing flow. So the money goes in the temple and then it pays for all the things that happen along the way. This is not unlike today. This is the, really the exact same thing happened today. If you put uh, your pennies in the black box over there, they filter in and then we use them for the rituals of the temple, like Sunday service, for the operation of the temple, like the lights are on. Like, so, so it's the same thing. You, your money that goes into covenant church pays for the, pays for the priest, right? Well, that's not my title. That's not what we call me, but it pays for me. And it also pays for our community life priest and our worship priest. And, our, and, and outside, we have kids running around, um, apparently doing a cakewalk and other fun activities. And guess what? Our covenant kids priestess is out there running it. And we pay for her through what comes in. Like, it pays for the, the whole organization of the way that the temple functions and the way that it all works. And that matters. And that's important. It also pays, when you give to covenant church, it pays for young life. And it pays for 
the Global Connections, and it pays for the Christian Academy as we give of the Reese's that are given, and we also have missional partners that are doing similar work with a similar mission as ours, and we, we pay for all of it together. We, we bless this one, and we help that one, and we support this one, just like in the temple. We see people taken care of. So in, in the kingdom, here's what I want you to understand about this. In the kingdom, Old Testament and now, all the same, money helps people relationally connect with God and... Money helps connect God with the hearts and needs of people. That's what it's, it's used. It's a conduit. It's a, it's a lubricant between two things that allows them to come back together. It's oil in the engine. It makes the whole thing run. It's not, it's not the most complicated thing in the world, is it? Money goes in, and then money goes out, and it blesses the people. Simple system. Talk about giving and generosity. Jesus is laying out a new paradigm, really, for how to see ourselves. And so anytime we talk about money, I want to be very clear that this, I'm about to talk about money. I'm very sorry. We had somebody who came and was visiting, um, and I said, oh, I'm so glad you were here. And like, this is my first time. And I was like, I'm so glad you got to come for the time I talked about money, because everybody loves that. Um, go to a big enough church, and what happens when you start saying money is people will, like, fake a coughing attack or something. They walk out the back door, and you just never see them again. And that's Okay. Jesus doesn't want your money. I want you to hear that, okay? Jesus is not here to take your money. The church, the kingdom, doesn't need your money. So when we talk about money, when Jesus talks about money, Jesus is not talking about your money, okay? He's using your money as a lens through which to see your heart, as a lens through which to see your life. And so as we talk about money, you will have to do the hard work to fight through the idea that you're going, oh, the church is talking about my money. It's not that. The church is talking about your heart. Jesus is talking about your heart and your life and who you are in your inner essence. And money is just the vehicle that gets to us pretty quickly. So that's what we're doing. So first, there's an external standard. There's three ways that we're going to see ourselves. First, there's an external standard, and that is this. Generosity is faithful. Generosity is always faithful. This is an external standard. There is a faithfulness that goes on, a rhythmic faithfulness with generosity, in that Jesus says that 10%, tithe just means 10%, that 10% hasn't gone away. And it's based on an idea that God owns the land, that God brings people into the promised land. It's still kind of God's land. He gives it to them to, to enjoy the land of milk and honey. Jesus gives it to them. But it's still his in the sense that they're sort of working like sharecroppers. Sharecroppers work the land, but someone else owns the land. And then you share the revenue. This is the idea of personal property that has changed in the years. So right now, personal property for you and I is very different than it was in the first century for a Jewish person. There, if you had your two acres, that was your land from God above that you could farm so you could survive. That was that. Simple thing. Now, we use land as a leverage mechanism for creating wealth, right? Land is now something I can own and there I can charge somebody for it or I can sell it after it appreciates at a greater value. Land is a wealth investment strategy, whereas then land was a sustenance strategy. It isn't that people didn't rent land. That's not the fullness of it. But it was more of like, God has given me land so I can survive. Nobody owned a tech stock in first century Jerusalem. Okay. So the first century Jewish idea would have been that God ultimately owns everything, but it's ours to use. So back to sharecropping. I asked a local farmer, I called a friend, and I said, tell me how sharecropping works, because I know you farm other people's land. He goes, I absolutely farm other people's land. I said, so what does it look like? He explains the mechanism of like, when I have an acre and I say, well, you farm my land. He says, well, here's how it works, and here's who buys seed, and here's who pays for the fertilizer and the weeding and the this and the that. And I said, okay, that's all very interesting. Can you break it down to like 
how does the revenue work out at the end? Like if you just had to ballpark it for me. And he goes, is this going in a sermon? And I said, no, <laughs> yes. So um, he says 50-50-ish. At the end of the day, you ballpark it, it's 50-50. If you give your acre to somebody to farm and it makes a dollar, you each walk away with two quarters. That's about how it works. I said, okay, well, that's actually really helpful. And he says, well, what, what's the sermon about then? I said, well, this idea of tithing is really funny because in the Old Testament, the Jews were really thrilled with the arrangement because sharecropping kind of hasn't changed a lot in the way that the revenues break down. But if you think about it, God owns the land and the Jews work the land. And at the end of the day, they keep 90 cents and they give him a dime. That's a pretty good deal. And he goes, I would look forward to farming in heaven. Thank you for calling me. And that was the end of our conversation because he's going, that's an incredible deal. I'm sharecropping with God and I only give him a dime. Why why, Why would God even want the dime? And this is an important question. Why does God even care about the 10%? Why is that a matter of faithfulness for us? Why is that a thing that God is working on? Jesus is sort of saying that the 10% just shows that you recognize where provision comes from. And look, we're, we're not here to say it needs to be, you know, 10%, 9%, 12%. Like, like it's, that, it's that sort of principled idea that the first fruit, that first thing I do is I recognize that provision comes from God. And so giving your first 10% Old Testament or today is the basic stuff. But Jesus says it's not just that. You don't give to the temple and then neglect the poor. And you also don't just give to the poor and neglect the temple. There's an internal driver. Secondly, first you have this external standard. Second, you have an internal driver that generosity is joyful. Generosity is joyful. It comes from within. Generosity is something that comes from within us. So Jesus says, you polish the outside so all can see. All you're concerned about is the outside. Unmarked graves is a pretty harsh assessment. Dead people, got no life in you. Jesus says, give from the inside of the cup as well. Give from the inside of the cup as well, which is a devastating blow for the Pharisees on on some level because they're hearing what Jesus is saying He's saying, first, you aren't released from being legally generous and giving of your, ta- your, your mint and your rue and your herbs of your garden. You actually keep doing that, Pharisees. He says, but there's more to it than that. You actually, you actually have to now give from the inside of the cup as well. You have to give of your life. You have to seek out generosity. You have to seek out injustice and, and work on it. You have to seek out the poor and the widow and the oppressed. And you have to, you have to give your life on their behalf. See, because true generosity is compelled from the heart. So if you lack generous justice in your life, if, if injustice doesn't do something to you, he's saying that's a heart condition. If you lack mercy or compassion, if you lack advocacy for people on the margins, for widows, orphans, immigrants, poor, if your generosity is just a duty to fulfill, what Jesus says to them is woe to you, which is a, a, another way of saying curses upon you. If your generosity is done in a religious way because it's something you're supposed to do but your heart's not in it, Jesus is saying it's better if you don't do it at all. Nobody wants your guilt money. The local charity doesn't need your guilt money. What they need is your heart and your support and your advocacy. Lives are being transformed in temple times and today by the regular spiritual outpouring of people, by the regular financial outpouring of people, by the service and giftedness of people. By by that, injustices are made right. By that, people are finding freedom and hope again. Jesus upholds that. He would say, if you're a giver to Covenant Church or Cedar Creek Church or Brookside Church or whatever church you go to, he would say, keep doing that because lives are being transformed. We would tell you, if you ask around, we're having a baptism 
kind of service throughout the month. We're collecting all these stories and baptisms. Why? Because people's lives are being transformed and they want to proclaim it to you. Like things are happening. Ministry goes on. We're all behind our mask, but behind the mask, lives are being radically transformed. And so Jesus would say, keep, keep funding that. That's happening. That's incredible. But there's more. Don't neglect to give your life and your time and your home and your network and your privilege because there is another life that can be transformed in this process of generosity, and it's yours. It's a two-part thing. We often think generosity is the means to affect someone else's life, and what Jesus is saying in not so many words is generosity is yes for that, but your generosity, the life it most, uh, most impacts, kind of most intimately, is your own. We've had that experience. You've had that experience where you did something for someone out of the generosity of your heart. It doesn't have to be you run a check. There's something profound about when you see a person standing on the side of the road begging and you have this, your groceries you've just bought and you take out the thing you're really looking forward to eating and you hand it to them out the window. You didn't transform their life, but you, you started transforming yours. There's something profound when someone has a need and you're able to give to it. When someone has, needs your time and, and you carve it out, you sacrifice and you hand, it, you hand them another hour of your life, it begins to form you into something. And sacrificially, it forms you into becoming more like Christ. Generosity ultimately is to transform you. Jesus is saying this. Give in the way that it costs you something. We live in a, in a country with a tax system that you can actually give in a way that gains you something. If you give under a certain tax threshold with this little check here, I can actually get under that and that'll save me this $1,000 so it'll me $4,000. Like, it's a pretty squirrely system. We can actually give in a way that benefits us, which... It's sort of antithetical to giving, but, you know, use your loopholes and do your thing. I'm not worried about you. But it's a real deal. And Jesus is saying, I want you to give in a way that costs you. Are you generous? Because generosity is, is creative. And this is kind of the fun part of this morning. Generosity is creative. That God designed you to be creative. God designed you to be innovative. God designed you and your brain to be creative in the way that you dispense his love and his mercy and his grace in the world around you. Tim Keller says there's a diagnostic. When you ask yourself, are you generous? And this is a tough one, but he says, first, the first way to know that you're generous in God's economy is you don't wince when somebody brings up a 10% a tithe. You don't wince and go, oh, church tax, gosh. You go, okay. It may hurt. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It just means you don't go, oh. You don't have that skeptical eye roll. He goes, okay, you're on the right path of generosity. Tim Keller would say the second thing is you find joy and creativity in giving. That you, you're able to uncover joy and creativity in the way that you give. Explain it this way. If I invite you over to dinner tonight, you're all welcome. If you all show up, you're going to get one thing for sure. You're going to get peanut butter and jelly because that's all I can afford to give everybody. But if I invite you to dinner and I give you peanut butter and jelly, is that a gift to you? Yes. Will it sustain you? Yes. Is it wildly creative? Is it as creative as I invite you to my house for dinner and I create a five-course meal and I slowly unveil one after another and I, I bring you into the story of the meal and I, I tell it from the viewpoint of this incredible cuisine of this far-off place and I, I slowly unpack it and I go, isn't this incredible? I spent all afternoon on it. The sandwich I spent two minutes on, it's fine, it sustains you. The meal I spent all day on, does it bless you? Do they bless you differently? Yes. Do they sustain you differently? Not necessarily. Calorically and all nutritionally, they may not be all that different. 
Unless you have a peanut allergy, in which case I may have killed you. So if you look at the way it works, they're not that different fundamentally. The dollar is the dollar is the dollar is the dollar, but the dollar done creatively with heart is the dollar that blesses you more, isn't it? Hmm. There's someone in the church that's been baking for us. Uh, their gift is baking. They're just incredible. I'm not going to steal their blessing by telling you who it is, but if you've been around here for a little bit, you probably already have an idea, and you can put that person in your mind and give them all the credit you want. They've been baking for us for years. She's very sweet. Come over, and there's just like fresh things, fresh pies and fresh cakes, and my family has enjoyed it. Our waistlines have enjoyed it. It's all been very nice since we got here four or five years ago. We've just enjoyed this person's hospitality and their, their gift of uh, baking. My wife, as you may or may not know, is on a really, really strict diet. We've had uh, a really tough year, tough two years, really, of, of GI stuff. And through uh, hospital stays and tests and all these various things, what we've landed on, the, the nutritionist and the GI doctor have, have put my wife on a very strict diet. Illustrated, we went to a, a restaurant the other day, and we were trying to order from a menu. It's impossible. And so she's talking to the waitress, and the waitress says, um, oh, are you, like, on, like, keto or something, naming the most extreme thing she can think of? And my wife goes, it's kind of like that, except plus this, 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 and I can't have that. And the, the waitress goes, oh. She goes, I tried keto for five minutes. That was way too hard, so I'm totally out on that, but good luck. And that was it. And we're like, okay, well, we'll, uh, we'll see you later. Thanks for trying to serve us. And we just move on. You know, you just get what you can get. So we're in this impossible place of, you know, no sugar and no gluten of any sort. And what about a nut? Well, no nuts like that. And what about no, no grain over there? And what about no, 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 can't do that. Can I have molasses? No. Honey? Yes. Maple syrup? No. And it's, it seems totally arbitrary. Science has figured it out. The point is this. It's impossible to bake for my wife. I'm the cook in the home. I do my best. I can't bake for anything. It's not my skill set. You have to be precise, and I'm just sort of principled. And so when you just throw flour into stuff, it doesn't work is the same way it does when you cook. And this woman who's been baking us, the point, what is the point? The point is, when this woman who's been baking for us for years had every right to go, that's expensive because your almond flour is 6,000 times the price of normal flour. And that's a ton of extra work. And I'm just, I, I tried. So I'm going to bake for the rest of the family. Sorry, you can't have any. And last night we got home. We were out of town for the day. We got home and there were uh, fresh chocolate zucchini muffins. Two sets. One for the family and one specially done for my wife. This woman's gift is baking. She gave of her gift and then she gave of her time and then she spent extra resources. She did all of these things to creatively craft a way to bless my wife in her specific place and portion. And the grace of that is overwhelming because I can't do that for her because I don't know how to do that for her. And somebody with the gift got creative and applied it in a joyful way. And it's a, it's a muffin, but it is life-changing for us at times. How do we cultivate that in ourselves? How do we cultivate that in others? We went through a season where we're trying to cultivate creative giving in our kids. Be intentional about this. And so we'd give them money every month that they could give away anywhere they wanted. We just wanted them to be more generous. And my eight-year-old loves animals, loves, capital L, loves animals. And every month we'd come in and we'd go, okay, what do you got? Every month it was a new thing about animals. It was the guide dogs for the kids who've been born blind. And then it was the helper dogs for the kids who've been born with special needs. And then it was the comfort dogs for the kids who are in the hospital. And then it was the horses at the ranch for the people who've been through trauma who can go to the ranch and ride the horse and that helps them through. And everything was animal-based. And you know what we did? We cheered her on. Because she was creative in the way that she wanted to give. The generosity of her heart and the passion of her life came together and she was able to find things that she both loved and would change people's lives. 
And that is what God is asking us to do, is to figure out who we are and who he wired us to be. I'm a baker, and I will find a way to use my baking to change someone's life. I love animals, and I will find a way to use my love for animals to change someone's life. How do we do the, the thing where we take what God has given us and deposit it in us, and then we let it overflow so that it transforms the lives of others, so that it increases joy and flourishing in the people that we meet? So my, my kid gets cre- creative and, and follows this God-given passion, our our friend in the church gets creative and follows her God-given passion. And what it does is it gives them greater joy. The $20 that my kid sends to the horse farm doesn't actually do much for the horse farm, let's be honest. But for her, she's now connected. She's an advocate. She cares. She's praying. It changes her. This is the same thing that happens for us. Joy becomes this, this kind of crazy, joyful uh, cycle of, of escalating joy. So my wife became a realtor a couple years ago. She finally had the space. Our kids were old enough that she could take on something a little bit more full-time, and she's been, she's just been doing it kind of amateur style for years, and so she just she jumped in, and she's incredible at it. She got great advice from Deb Schaefer, who's been a realtor in this church for a long time, and they kind of teamed up, and she gave her all the things she needed to know, and she jumped into it, and God has blessed her, and I think she does a pretty good job. Her favorite part is when she gets a commission check, we get to send that money to our friends that we lived with in South Africa, to the church that we lived with, this inner city, terribly poor, and we get to send them money from there. One of the first questions she asks when she gets a commission check is, did you send the money? One of the first places she goes, the first thing she asks is, did you send the money to Africa? Not, can I go buy that coat I've had my own? Not, not can we afford to do that thing we've been wanting to do for the house. Did you send it? Because there's this joy in her that when she's able to do that, she has this whole other level of satisfaction in what she does because she recognizes that what God has blessed her with and her love for people and her ability to negotiate and all these things, God's blessed her and it allows her to bless others. The beauty of this is it also grows our relationship and our joy with them. And so, We now get monthly calls when we send them money on PayPal. Two to three days later, they find it, they discover it, they bring it into their account. And then we get phone calls and emails where they say, thank you so much. You don't understand how many people's lives you're changing. We're feeding hundreds of kids every day. This goes so much further than you think. And they can turn a penny into a dollar really fast. They can stretch stuff. And so they're not lying to us. And we know, we've seen it firsthand. We fed those kids. We get what they're doing. We're keeping their lights on, right? That temple's getting blessed by this temple. My favorite part is they always go in, we're praying for you. And I know these people, they are praying for us. And we say, well, thank you so much. They go, no, no, I mean, yes, we're praying for you. But they always say, we're actually just praying that you sell more houses. (laughs) And the last email we got, we're praying that you sell more houses, bigger houses, big, big houses. We want you to sell all the houses. Because the joy cycle is there for both of us. When we have the blessing of doing what God has designed us to do, then we are able to share the blessing and that they see the blessing and they want more of the blessing. And it's just incredible, cool cycle. And our greatest joy is not getting the commission check. It's hitting send on the part of the commission check that goes straight over across 10,000 miles away and sees lives transformed. It reminds us what money is for. And it reminds us that money can't own us. Giving money away just reminds us we can't, we can't be owned by it. It's not, it's not going to own me. God owns it. God owns me. Third and finally, there's a spiritual component happening here. Generosity is spiritual. Jesus notes that the rule followers sometimes neglect God's love and justice even as they give. Listen to Paul echo 
that idea to the Corinthians. Paul is asking the church at Corinth for money to fund the church at Macedonia. That's what's happening in 2 Corinthians. So when you read that book, part of that is Paul is asking, he's fundraising from Corinth to pay for Macedonia. Here's what he writes to them. As he's asking for money, he says, I, I ask you this, I say this, not as a command, I'm not making you give, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Your giving is a witness to the church at Macedonia that God's love in you is real. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Paul says, guys, I won't make you give. I can't make you give, but I shouldn't need to. It is the proof of the earnestness of your love. Why is money the proof? Why, why can't it be something else? The Bible reminds us over and over and over is that at times we all love money a little too much. We all at times put money in a place it wasn't designed to be. We hold it as our hope or our security. We want it as our significance and our satisfaction. We all at times have a love for money that is uh, out of proportion with where it belongs in our life. That money is a neutral thing, but sometimes we put it above other places it should be. And it creates problems for us. Tim Keller says it this way in a 1993 sermon. He said this, he said, Amongst the poor, the love of money creates crime and envy. Amongst the middle class, the love of money creates workaholism and worry. And among the rich, the love of money creates superficiality because you're just so absorbed in your homes and in your recreation that nobody else can afford that you're not actually serving anybody. It's the same thing in all three scenarios. It's materialism. It is greed. I appreciated that he said that because I didn't have to say that. So you send him your email. What's true about that that he said for me is I got all those. You may put yourself in the right socioeconomic category and go, well, that's kind of true for me. That's kind of not true. Or maybe you're in between. I'm lower middle class. I'm upper middle class, so I don't really apply to either. Nice loophole. For me, I've been all those things. Envious, yep. Workaholic, yeah, I got those seasons. Worry, mm -hmm. superficial, so absorbed in the ex exclusivity of my recreation that I forget of the people that he's called me to love. Those are real things. We want money because it allows us to control our lives and what we end up finding out is that money controls us. Our spiritual reality begins to fade while we chase financial dreams. You can't chase God and money. You can't have two masters. The Bible is very clear. You cannot have two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You have to pick one. And so either, and there are some churches that would teach you this and we would disagree with them, either um, God exists to give you more money. I don't think so. Or money exists so you can better love God. And so we would, we would ascribe to the latter. We would say that there are, there are places where you will hear teaching that if you just do this for God, he'll bless you prosperity. He'll give you more money. He'll give you more stuff. You can buy your next boat or your plane or your whatever is bigger than a plane. I don't know, helium airship. Um, the opposite of that is what we would say is that, that God actually is okay with you having lots of money because money is neutral. But the point of the point of the money is actually to bless God. The point of more money is to have more chances for overflow, to have more people that we can bless, to have more ways we can impact the kingdom, to have more ways we can give and figure out how Jesus operated in this place. So men, make your millions. No one is going to come in here and say your money is bad or you're bad for trying to make money. If you're entrepreneurial, be entrepreneurial. If you're opening 15 businesses or you got a great stock instincts or whatever you have that makes you make your money, just remember that your money 
is God's way of opening up an invitation to you to feel his grace, to experience his flourishing, to see his fullness, and to participate in his kingdom. That's all it is. And so by all means, make more. There's no shortage of great ministries around us that could, could use it. The challenge is that we sometimes lose God to money and we lose our grip on our hearts and we begin to grip for something else. We lose our, our sense of hope in Christ and we look for it elsewhere. We lose our sense of security in Christ. We look for it elsewhere. Our significance, even our salvation, we begin to find it other places. So Paul pleads with us, remember the grace. You know the grace in Christ alone. Beyond your wildest imagination, he gave up the ultimate riches and became poor so that you might know the richness of grace. No greater love, no more generous example. This is the grace that you have been offered. And anything less, anything less than I want to experience more of God's grace. Anything less becomes a hollowed out book. This looks like a normal book. When I was living in South Africa, uh, it's a very dangerous country. This was 2004. So like ATM cards and internets and wire transfers and online, it didn't exist. So when I went, I took my whole year's finances and then I converted them to cash and then I had this wad of weird South African money. And for the year, I had like $6,000, which doesn't seem like a lot to live on for a year, but there it went pretty far. I felt pretty much okay. The problem was it was so unsafe that I didn't know where to keep this much money. The church had a safe, and that safe had been stolen multiple times. So once they stopped breaking into the safe, they just started taking the safe. So then they bolted the safe into the wall at the church, and then somebody came in and cut out that portion of the wall and the floor and just took the whole thing with them. And so at some point, you go, maybe the safe is not as safe as you think. Um, so I kept mine, because I'm way smarter than them. I kept mine rolled up in a sock in a drawer. And that thing gave me anxiety, I'm going to be honest. It gave me a little bit of anxiety to put my year's worth of living expenses in a sock in a drawer. Because somebody, if they came in and they started rooting around looking for something, and if they went into the sock drawer and felt a sock that didn't feel like a sock, they'd probably take the sock. And then what would I have? All my security is gone. Everything is gone. So I thought, I'm going to be smarter than these people. I'm going to be smarter than this sock thief. I know he's out there. What I'm going to do is go to the used bookstore, and I'm going to buy the most boring book I can find. Did you know that old Vladimir Lenin wrote a book called Against Liquidationism? I bet you did. You've probably read this, but I hadn't, and I found it exceedingly boring. So I bought this book, and I went home, and I took a little pen knife, and I hollowed out the center, and I made myself a little money holder, a little secret bank of my own. And this is a little South African 20 rand note. It's got an elephant on it. That's really sweet, isn't it? It's got Mandela on the back, you know, so we really got ourselves something here. That's worth about 12 cents. And so what we did is put all my money in the book, and then I put the book on a shelf, and I said, look, if somebody's got the time to look through all these books, and if somebody is bored enough to pick up that book, they deserve whatever's in it. And I thought, I now feel better. My money is secure. I'm, I got it figured out. I'm secure. I'm safe. Went to bed that night after I put all my money in the book. Didn't feel any better. Guess what? What if the house burns down? All right. Now I need a fireproof book stuffed in a sock. In, like, how many layers do we go for safety and security until we realize that none of it's really that safe? It was about fear. South Africa is a dangerous place. I was fearful, and I leaned into my fears, and I said, I am afraid that someone's going to take my money. If they take my money, I don't eat, and if I don't eat, I die, and I got no other way. So all my security and my, my, my safety and, and everything was bound up in this fear I had, and I didn't know how to let go of it. Life was dangerous. 
And all of my attempts to control that danger with my own ways led to greater fear and greater anxiety and greater worry. And ironically, my last month there that year, I gave all of my money away in some in like misguided missionary zeal. I gave somebody all my money. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I ate better that last month than I did all the months combined before it. I woke up every morning and go, God, I don't know where the food's coming from. And it showed up and I kept eating. And sometimes it was out of the back of the grocery store. And I've told that story where you're eating expired sushi and that wasn't the best. But it showed up. And then sometimes I'm getting taken to a steak dinner and I got no means to pay for it, but people were generous. I had nothing. And all of a sudden, all of my security went from the book or the sock or any other scheme I had and it went into God and God said, I got you. I got you. It's as if God looked at me and said, what were you so afraid of? I made this world and everything in it. What are you so afraid of? When we deal with money, that's the question God is asking us. God is saying, what are you so afraid of? That you won't have a place to live, that I won't put food in your belly. In the weeks to come, Jesus isn't going to talk about sparrows the most common bird there is and how many there are and how God knows each and every one of them. Does he not know you? Does he not love you? Does he not have good plans for you? What are you so afraid of? When your richness is in Jesus, when your security is in Jesus, when your safety is in Jesus, it cannot be taken away. When your richness and your safety and your security are in Jesus, guess what happens as well? Since it cannot be taken away, you are left with nothing to fear. And so you do strange, radical things like you give away all your money with a month left to live somewhere. And God goes, guess what? Nothing to fear. I got you. You don't need a book to hide it in. You don't need a plan or a scheme. God frees you up to live and to love and experience his grace and then dispense his justice and see lives transformed. Not only theirs, but yours. Are you generous? Only time in the Bible God says to test him is through the prophet Malachi. He says, test me with your finances. Test me and watch. I want to be really clear in this point. This is not about you putting checks in those black boxes. You're welcome to do that. I will not stop you. This is not about your money coming into Covenant Church. And if your passion is the pregnancy center because you know they're changing lives and God has wired you up to have a passion for that, give your money to them. You want to give us 0% and give them 20? Go for it. If your passion is young life and what they're doing to redirect lives, give it there. If it's crew, if it's the Christian Academy, if it's Global Connections, if it's some far-off ministry I've never heard of, if it's to horse farms and guide dogs, give yourself away because you will see that God is glorified in your generosity and that you will be transformed by it. This is not about building up church coffers. I could care less. Our elders would tell you right now, it is not about creating more wealth in the church. It's about getting the wealth out of the church and into the world so that the kingdom might be seen. So our challenge to you, my challenge to you is not give more money to the church. If you want to, because that's part of what God is telling you to do, that's yours. My challenge to you is to find your life in a more generous place, that your time and your energy and your giftedness is overflowing from you and it's blessing others. And as a result, you are feeling God's grace and God's power in your life in a new way. Some, some of you are in here right now and you go, I don't really have a lot of spare change anyway. So this whole thing was lost on me. And I would say, Good luck. You can listen to it again. We're going to post it online. Here's the thing. It isn't about your money. Jesus doesn't want your money. If you're seven years old or 75 years old, if you're on a fixed budget or government income or whatever it is, it's not about your money. Give of your time. Give of your grace. 
Give of your network, give of your wisdom, give of your privilege, give of your heart, give of what God has given you, whatever that is. And then watch as God blesses it as it goes out and then returns it to you twofold. The invitation to be generous is an invitation to open up the secret places of our lives. This is what most of us need to hear because what most of us don't want to admit is that, that money is really, it's living in the secret places in our lives. That money covers up our insecurity and our worry and our envy. That money is this thing that satisfies our greed for the moment. And what God wants to do is invite you to open up the most secret, vulnerable places of your lives to him and allow him to come and transform them and take them from being secretive places that you're ashamed of and you have guilt in. And he wants to free you up to live your life fully with no more shame and no more guilt and no more worries and fears about what's coming next. God supplies Jesus to say, I've already taken care of the end. Generous living is an invitation to experience Jesus in a brand new way, to experience the faithfulness and the joyfulness and the creativity and the sacrificial nature of the one we call our Savior. And so my challenge to you is to be generous so that you might know Jesus better. And through your generosity, you might make him known in a brand new way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the challenge of generosity is difficult. Our culture is difficult. Our attachment to money and things, Father, is difficult. I know in my own life how hard it is to separate myself from the security that finances would bring, the security that, that you offer us through provisions that we don't even recognize as from you. So, Lord, first I would confess that I'd be chief among us in too often placing security in lesser things than you. And then, Lord, I would ask that you would continue the work in my heart of replacing that security with you, of replacing that sense of safety or salvation, that thing that I'm aiming for that's less than you. God, God, open my hands and let those things fall out so that I can grasp you and hold you and walk with you. Father, for this community, this community that's been so generous, Pray that you would continue to deepen our hearts of generosity, that you would remind us that it isn't about our finances, that they may be a reflection, but God, you are after our hearts. You're after us. So Father, we open ourselves to you and say, show us. You say, test me. We say, show me. God, as we walk with you, would you open the gates, the floodgates of grace in our lives so that we might pour it into the lives of others. Thank you for Jesus for his sacrifice and our salvation, we pray in his beautiful name. Amen. Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon for our live Sunday service at 9.30, 11 a.m. or 11 a.m. online. Thanks for listening.